I don't know if he has another gun. I know he keeps turning and looking back at me. And I know that he tried to kill me. At the very least, he's a fleeing felon. But I, I believe that he's still a threat. And, uh, and I fired at him and I missed. It's not easy to quantify fear, although the Los Angeles Police Department makes a gallant stab at the problem. The department estimates the existence of between four and five hundred street gangs in the city of Los Angeles. Total gang membership, somewhere between 40 and 50,000. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is retired Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department homicide detective, Danny R. Smith. From the streets of South Los Angeles to the elite homicide bureau, former Sheriff's Detective Danny R. Smith patrolled the city during one of LA's darkest times, a crack cocaine epidemic of the late 80s and 90s, unprecedented gang warfare, a spike in homicides that stunned the nation, and the Rodney King riots. Today, Danny's going to talk about crime in the 90s and high-adrenaline episodes from his 21-year career that seemed routine at first, but ended up nearly costing him his life. After having to retire from the Sheriff's Department because of PTSD, Danny Smith moved to Idaho with his wife and family and found a more peaceful life there as a private investigator, consultant, and writer. He's the author of the gritty, hard-boiled Dickie Floyd detective novels and the excellent law enforcement memoir, Nothing Left to Prove. It's our great honor to welcome retired Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department homicide detective, Danny R. Smith, as today's hero behind the headlines. So I, I'm with the LA County Sheriff's Department, uh, 21 years, and I uh, I had joined up pretty early in life when I was 21, the earliest that you could back then, and uh, had planned on doing about 35 years, but I ended up leaving with some uh, physical ailments and PTSD after 21 years on the job. Um, a- after that, I, I started a PI company, and I'm just now retiring from that, so... Uh-huh. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the distinction between the LAPD and the LA County Sheriff's Department and what your perception of the two was and is? LA County Sheriff's is a, about a 10,000 sworn personnel department, very, very large agency, the largest sheriff's department in the world. And, and uh, they are responsible for policing all unincorporated parts of LA County and additionally, they are contracted by numerous cities throughout the county to police their cities as well. And even cities with their own police agencies contract certain parts of our department uh, to, to perform services such as, you know, the SWAT, the homicide. When I, when I worked homicide, we did a lot of homicide investigations for some of the smaller agencies that, that either didn't have homicide detectives or they didn't have... Uh, enough resources for, for, let's say, a case that was, was uh, overwhelming to them. Um, a lot of times we do, there are officer-involved shootings for them. So the Sheriff's Department can, can 
basically the the sheriff of the county is the chief law enforcement officer of the county and LAPD and they hate it when I say this but but they are they're just another city within our county now granted they are they are a very large city and a very large agency in fact our agencies are very close in size as far as personnel but but they are one of uh, I think it's 40 some cities within the county of Los Angeles and yeah, so the the sheriff's department is is unique in that they they provide they they have to provide the jail system. So the department oversees all of the jail operations of the county, and then we have the patrol functions throughout, as I mentioned, all unincorporated areas as well as many of the contract cities. And then, um, like every police department, they have various specialized units. You know, we have. I think it's, when I was still on the department, we had six full-time SWAT teams. I think now they're up to eight or 10. And of course, we have a very, very large detective division with, with everything from you know narcotics, fraud, forgery, homicide, uh, special investigations. You know, I mean, I could go on and on. It's, it's almost, almost too, too much to even give you a, a brief overview of, but, but it's uh, recognized as one of the greatest agencies in the country. Uh, other agencies from all over the country and, and actually beyond all over the world have sent their uh, officers to our agency for training over the years or have somehow participated with our department for training. So you were active up until when? I hired on 1983 and okay. I retired in uh, 2004. So those were, those were very active years in law enforcement in L.A. County, correct? Yeah, yeah, my patrol career was spent in South Los Angeles, a, a station called Firestone. It no longer exists. It was merged with another station uh, called Linwood to become the now Century Station, and they named it that because of the Century Freeway that goes right through it. But um, but it's South LA. Firestone Station was uh, about a mile, two miles at the most from uh, Florence and Normandy, where the riots started. Um, so. I was there for the riots there during what we call the the crack cocaine epidemic, the uh, the the gang warfare that that followed that crack cocaine epidemic, um, murder rates that that skyrocketed and and uh, to this day I don't think they've been matched. It was it was the first time that that you know the the eighties and, and into the nineties. They had uh, they had so many murders and, and and so many gunshot victims that the military were sending their medics to Martin Luther King Hospital for training because it was the only place that they could go in the country and have the volume of of cases come through there uh, that would be similar to what they might see in in war because of the high caliber type of weapons you know the AK forty sevens and the and the AR-15s that were being used on the streets. So they actually sent medics to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital for training. It was pre-Rodney King, L.A. The crack cocaine epidemic was in full swing, as were the turf wars between various gangs, including Bloods and Crips, over control of the drug trade in inner-city neighborhoods in L.A. County. That meant constant drive-by shootings, overdoses, drug busts, break-ins, vehicle thefts, and robberies. Danny says it was a very rare night when, as a cop patrolling the streets, he didn't go out and make at least one arrest. 
Multiple arrests a night was more the norm. Murder rates in the decade between 1980 and 1990 averaged an unprecedented 1,000 a year. The average in the decade following that was less than half. It got so bad that by 1996, L.A. Police Chief Bernard Malekian declared, no more dead kids, as the LAPD's motto. It was like trying to keep peace in the Wild West, Danny says. It didn't take much for a routine traffic stop to turn into a deadly showdown. It was 1988, and it was uh, was in the winter of 1988, I remember that probably November or December, and um, again, this is this is like during the height of of the crack epidemic and gang warfare. I, it was it was very common to take you know machine guns off the streets, you know, to to pull guys over and they they were fully armed or they had you know uh, cocaine in the car, you know, large volumes of it. There was just a lot of of drug trafficking and gang warfare because of the drug trafficking, because, you know, the gangs, once they started, you know, selling the crack, they became very wealthy and they could have, they were able to finance, you know, better weapons than, you know, than we had, truthfully. Um, What kind of weapons were you carrying in those days? uh, 38 revolvers. (laughs) Uh Yeah. And, Yeah. and, And body armor or not? Oh yeah, we wore body armor. Um, they switched to Beretta nine millimeter, the ninety two F, in my last year of patrol. I think it was probably uh, ninety ninety one. We were one of the last stations to get to get moved over to the Berettas, but um, but but I clearly remember that that at that time in eighty eight, we were still carrying uh, thirty eight caliber revolvers. You know, and there were there were quite a few deputy involved shootings there were lots of murders i mean it was a place where you literally could drive around the corner and witness a shooting or a murder and anyone who worked down there for any length of time they did so that's the type of area and most of it was gang related i imagine most of it was gang related uh which also you know has layers of, of dope related it's kind of all one in the same the uh the night that that this incident happened uh, my partner and I were driving on Central Avenue, and uh, my partner was driving. I was the bookman that night, meaning the passenger officer, and he wrote the reports. And uh, and Central Avenue was our western border, and it bordered with 77th and Southeast divisions of LAPD. And um, one block west of Central Avenue was a street called Wadsworth, and Wadsworth was a famous dope street. And we weren't supposed to poach. We were supposed to stay in our own area. But, you know, if it got slow, guys couldn't help sometimes to sneak over to LAPD's area because, quite frankly, the arrests there were easy. Like, the dope dealers would stand on the corner even as you're driving up because they they didn't, they weren't used to the cops stopping and jacking them and, and, you know, saying, put your hands on the hood of the car and searching them for weapons and dope, which, you know, truthfully, uh, you know, uh, profiling, although it's a dirty word, it's it's a very effective tool in in policing. And I tell people, I said, you know, it, it has nothing to do with race. Um, it, it doesn't matter the race of a person. It's more, it's more uh, when you see a, a gangster, they're dressed down to to show everyone that I'm a gangster and this is the neighborhood I'm from. A crip is in blue, a blood is in red, and 
no person in South Los Angeles is going to dress that way if he's not a gang member because it's hard enough just to live down there, much less to look like someone who's going to be a target to the rival gangs. So they just don't do it. My point is, you know, we're experts in recognizing gang members. And in fact, we know most of them. And, uh, and it's pretty easy to, to identify these guys. So circling back, we weren't supposed to go to Wadsworth or out of the city to, to look for arrests. And generally speaking, we mostly did not. But sometimes you'd have to go that direction for something and you'd jack some guys. And it was always easy dope arrests. Well, we were on Central Avenue, which is our border, as I mentioned. And we see a car coming off of 87th and Wadsworth, which, you know, again, just any any time of the day or night, you could have gone over there and made an arrest for cocaine. So there's two guys driving or two guys in the vehicle. And they both look over at us and they both have this aw shit look on their faces. And, and we recognize this look and we know the area they just came from. You know, it's, it's midnight or later, I don't know, but you know, the, these guys are obviously up to no good. So we flip a U-turn. And at this point, we're going to run the plate and see who they are and where they're, where they're from, maybe where they're going and check them out. Well, when we did, they slowed down to where they're, they're driving like 10, 15 miles an hour under the speed limit. And they're, they're moving around the car. They're reaching around. They keep watching, uh, both in the mirrors and the passenger looking back over his shoulder. So we light them up with the, hit the red light to, to say pull over and they keep driving and, uh, and, and they continue to be active in the car. And so we're, you know, we're both experienced street cops. We're like, okay, these guys are up to no good. They're dirty. And, uh, and, and the reason they're going so slow is they're trying to figure out what to do next. And at any moment, I truthfully expected them to just speed up. And now we're in a pursuit and pursuits were common down there. We, we, we would be in pursuits quite often. So, but they don't, they just keep creeping down central Avenue. And then they turn onto this street, uh, called Clovis, which kind of veers off of Central, and then they turn right onto uh, another street, Colden. And at Clovis and Colden, now we're back in the city, back in LAPD's area, and they turned and stopped right at the mouth of an alley. Well, first they, they started kind of rolling to a stop. So this was this was unfolding probably not as slowly as, as I remember it, because when you get into situations like shooting situations, time almost stops. Everything just seems to really slow down. But they pull up to this. This This is a residential area or commercial? Yeah. Yeah. So this is residential. This is um, residential South Los Angeles. And uh, another thing that gangsters used to do a lot was they'd shoot out the streetlights wherever they hung out. And they liked the darkness. And I don't remember now if the streetlights weren't working. But they pulled kind of beneath the canopy of a large tree. So even if there were street lights, I think it still would have been exceptionally dark where they finally eventually stopped. And even, you know, if there was moonlight, it wouldn't have mattered. They were, they were almost, it was almost the perfect place for them to stop under the cover of darkness. And as they're, as they're slowing to a stop, uh, my partner and I are communicating and, and I started saying, they're going to run, they're going to run, they're going to run, which is, you know, kind of the next thing that happens if they don't take off in the car and you're in pursuit, the next thing they do is look for somewhere to bail out and they run different directions. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then you're, so, then you're on foot. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Then you're on foot, and I was I was never fast, so I'm not a fast runner. Never was. Even in my my you know best day, I wasn't fast. So um, so I'm I'm coming out of the car before our car stopped, because the passenger door pops open and he's coming out of his car, the 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 one suspect, the passenger suspect of this vehicle we're following, he's coming out of his car before it's completely stopped. So now, I mean, that reinforces to me, this guy's going to run. And uh, so I come out of the car and I come around the door and I'm going toward him. And I, and I, of course, pull my gun and I'm pointing at him and I'm yelling all that magical police shit, you know, stop, freeze, police, whatever. And, uh, None of it ever seemed to work, but anyway, <laughs> all of a sudden I, I realized that this guy had just freaking stopped and he's facing me. So he just kind of moved uh, far enough from the car that he's no longer illuminated by the spotlights we had turned on while we're coming, you know, while we're getting ready to pull them over. Now we got spotlights burning holes in their back of their neck trying to, you know, we got the red light going. We got the spotlights going through the interior of the car. Well, he's just far enough away from the car now that that he literally is is in this darkness. He's he's shrouded in darkness, and he's wearing a black trench coat, and it's you know the black of night. So I can't see this guy hardly at all, and uh, um, and it and it occurs to me like a like I got slapped in the face that he's not running. And at the same second that that occurs to me, I realize, and he's facing me, this guy's going to take me on. And in that same instant where I'm now going through this, this shoot, don't shoot scenario in my mind, which we train for that constantly. You know, they put you through all kinds of very high stress situations, simulators, et cetera, where you train and shoot, don't shoot. You know, they have a simulator where someone pops out and scares you, but it's a, you know, a woman with a baby in her arm, you know. Right, right. You don't shoot her, (laughs) you know. So the whole idea is to prepare you for situations like that and not to shoot unless you're, you're defending yourself, basically. Yeah, I mean, you have to identify a threat and you have to know that it's a deadly threat. And, and no cop, or at least 99% of cops, want to be in a shooting. You, you don't want to be in a shooting. You don't want to be in a bad shooting, especially. And, and, and cops, you know, for the most part, the, the very vast majority are, are good people that, that took the job for the right reasons. And they, they don't want to take someone's life. And they don't want to end up in a bad shooting. And they're not there to, you know, traumatize people. They're, they're there literally to make the community safer for those people that are locked behind the, the you know, security doors. and Right, and, and if they know, shoot somebody, windows. it's going to complicate their lives immensely because they're going to oh, be yeah. investigations. Yeah, no, cops, and, when, yeah. when you shoot someone, you go through a lot mentally uh, and, and career-wise and in a bad shooting. I mean, you, you know, in that shoot-don't-shoot shoot scenario, you're literally – you're looking at the possibility of taking someone's life and you're also looking at the possibility of ruining your own life. Either, you know, if, if it's not a great shooting, if it's not a good shooting, I mean, you go to prison, you certainly could lose your job. You could be, you could be sued. Well, you could be sued good or bad shooting. Um, but, but those are the things that a cop deals with and he's got to be clear and he's got to be correct. And he doesn't have, hours or days or weeks to sit there and, and, and go through this video 
you know, like the people who judge him, you know, the, the people who are going to judge that shooting, that's that, that decision he makes in an instant, those people who have probably most of them, the great, the vast majority of them have never faced that danger themselves, but those people have the luxury of sipping their coffee and, and, and viewing whatever video or right, slow it down and reverse it and watch it again. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and the, and conversely, you know, I've got this split second decision of, is this guy going to kill me? Do I need to shoot him first? You know, so it's, it's, or is he not a threat? And I have to decide that. Well, as I'm trying to decide this, and again, this is all in a split second. Yeah. You know, in the dark. I mean, this, this happens at so midnight. quick. It's yeah. unbelievable. But all of a sudden I hear a metallic sound clank. Huh. Right on the ground. I knew. I knew what it was. I mean, you know, I've had. Yeah. I've had lots of guns dropped on me before. You know, and right. um, I probably have dropped my own before. But you know, I knew it was a gun. I knew a gun hit the ground. And of course, I couldn't see his hands. I couldn't see anything really, but this massive darkness. And the shoot don't shoot scenario was was instantly resolved in my head because. Somehow in that in that split second, I not only knew that okay he does have a gun, but I also knew that but he dropped it, like he had one, but he doesn't. You know now I do now I don't. You know shoot don't shoot, and and I I tell people you know the the instincts of a of a good guy, those instincts are totally different than than those of bad guys. See, uh, bad guys and and killers, they don't they don't struggle with those same decisions in that same that moral same dilemmas level. yeah yeah moral dilemma i mean yeah so as a good guy the second that 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 it registered in my head that okay the guy had a gun but he dropped it on the ground then it was don't shoot you know big neon sign in my brain don't shoot you drop the gun and now the guy takes off running again i want to i want to emphasize all of this probably took less than two or three seconds from the time I came out of the car to when now he's running up the alley. But literally all of those things go through your brain because anyone will tell you in a, in a, in a shooting or a stressful situation, time slows down. I've, I've investigated shootings where I've had people tell me that they actually could see the bullet traveling through the air. That's how slow everything just wow. gets slowed down. Wow. So, no, I've been now in situations guy, like that before, and <coughs> I know I know what you're talking about. It's it's extraordinary. Yeah, it is. It is. Yep. So, the guy's running through the alley, and I'm chasing him. He's and what's happening away. with your partner? Your partner's still at the. Well, car? I don't know. Oh, I mean, I, okay. I, I know later, but the, at yeah. the moment, I'm I'm. You're just like, focused on this guy. I'm homed in on this guy, man, and and. Uh, but now I actually have some time to think because now we're running through an alley. He's pulling away from me. He keeps looking back over his shoulder and kind of turning his, his, you know, body to do so while he's running. And, and I've had time to, to consider what had happened. And, and what I, what I knew is that he had a gun and he had stopped to take me on. He, he, otherwise he would have just jumped and ran, but he turned and faced me. He was going to take me on. So this guy was going to shoot it out with a cop. This guy was going to try to kill me. And so he's basically a cop killer or a would-be cop killer. And something happened that stopped that. 
Now, I don't know if he fumbled with the gun, pulling it out of his waistband. I mean, at that moment, I, don't, I didn't know whether, whether he had fumbled with the gun or if the gun had malfunctioned or, or what had happened. But, so he didn't but I, drop the gun on purpose. That was pretty clear to you. Well, to me, it was clear because he, he turned and faced me. So that's, that's a confrontational, I'm going to take this guy on. So to me, when the gun dropped... And he, and, and he did have more of an aw shit look on his face even after the gun dropped. Like, I remember seeing his eyes like, fuck, you know, and, and, we, and we took off running. So now I'm processing all of this, and, uh, and quite frankly, now I'm pissed off. Now I'm like, this guy tried to kill me. So, and he's still looking back as he's pulling away, and I knew I wasn't going to catch him. So I fire my weapon at him then because I don't know if he has another gun. I know he keeps turning and looking back at me. And I know that he tried to kill me. At the very least, he's a fleeing felon, but I, I believe that he's still a threat. And uh, and I fired at him and I missed. But the real story is that I come back to the car because my partner and I had separated, obviously. I assumed my partner was detaining the driver. I hadn't heard any other gunshots, so I, I wasn't concerned about, you know, that he had been in a shooting or anything. But... This was before we had handheld radios, and, and so I had no way to communicate with him. And I'd only run a short distance. But I come back to the car, and and as expected, and now I hear sirens coming. So he had gotten on the radio and requested assistance. And he's still at the safety of his car, you know, um, in, in the doorway, and the spotlights are on the driver, and the driver's got his hands out the window. And my partner was... Uh, he had his gun trained on him, and he's, you know, still yelling that magical police shit about, you know, keep your hands up, don't move. So I get back, and I and I knew there would be a gun on the ground, and um, and I saw as I get back, I see that there's a machine pistol. It looked like an Uzi or whatever. And I wasn't like a real gun nut or anything, and I, I you know, at first glance, I didn't even know what it was, but I also didn't care. We had this other guy to deal with, and about that time. Some assisting units pulled up. We did a felony extraction, got him out of the car, arrested him. Uh, he had a gun under his seat. He probably had stashed there why they, why they stopped. But uh, once everything was secure, we go over and look at this gun, and it's a Mac 11, which is a 380 caliber, and it had a 32-round magazine in it, or what people usually standardly call a clip, and it was fully loaded with 32 rounds of ammunition. And, uh, and there was a bullet in the chamber, and the chamber was closed. Between February and July 1984, cocaine abuse and related violence exploded to unprecedented levels throughout the city of Los Angeles. From there, crack spread to most major cities in the United States. The epicenter of the crack cocaine epidemic, South Central, saw the most police raids and arrests, drive-by shootings, and other drug-related violence in the country. Fueling the increasing violence were guns, handguns and automatic weapons that were more lethal and sophisticated than anything the police had in their arsenal. Uzi submachine guns, 9mm Glocks, High Point, Taurus, and Smith & Wesson automatics. Up until 1988, the standard issue gun for the LAPD was the Smith & Wesson K-38 Combat Masterpiece Revolver, 
They were no match for the fully automatic Mac 11 380 ACP machine pistol with a fully loaded 32 round magazine that Danny just described. So, uh, I don't remember. One of the other deputies actually secured the weapon for me and, um, you know, cleared it, made it safe. And we held it as evidence, took it back to the station once everything's done and we're booking the other guy. Uh, actually, we had set up a containment and we searched for the guy that got away. Um, uh-huh. but we, we never found him. And in the car, there was, there were several thousand dollars in, in cash. Uh, there was one of those big cell phones about the size of a tissue box, you know, that <laughs> yeah. back, back in 88, no one had a cell phone. I mean, you know, uh, the, the president and dope dealers, that's right. it, you know, <laughs> yeah. and all this cash, the the phone, I mean, everything adds up, the guns, too, that, you know, these guys were, were dope dealers, and they probably just either delivered dope and picked up cash from, from their street guys or something. But uh, but anyways, we finish. We don't find uh, the, the outstanding suspect. And at the station, we get back to the station, and uh, is actually one of my best friends and, and roommates, for, for a long time, he came into the station and he said, huh, Mac 11, huh? You know, and his name's Bobby. And Bobby was a gun nut. And I said, yeah. I said, man, I'm, I, I, the guy pulled it on me. I said, I don't know if he fumbled it and dropped it or what, but I, he was going to take me on and whatever reason he, he didn't. And, uh, and Bobby's looking at it and he said, um, he says, was that bolt open or closed? And I said, it, it was closed. Uh, on a live round he goes where's the round that was in the chamber and i hand it to him he looks at he goes there's a dent in the primer anyways he explained to me um and and i didn't know it until that night but but the mac 11 380 is a fully automatic what they call an open bolt machine pistol and it's the configuration of that is the bolt is always open until it falls on a on a empty chamber or a expended round. So it's carried with the bolt open. The only way the bolt can be closed with a live round in the chamber is that the trigger was pulled, the bolt went forward, and for whatever reason, the bullet wasn't fired. And in this case, it was simply a misfire. Now what's exceptionally important about this is that Bobby also explained to me that that 32 round magazine can be emptied with one pull of the trigger in less than two seconds. So, and, and the, and the gun itself cycles so quickly that you can see, you know, if you see videos of people demonstrating these, the use of these types of weapons, you can hold that with one hand and it, and it cycles so quickly, it, it almost stabilizes itself. It just kind of stays stable. So I was probably 20 feet from him. 30 feet at the most when I'd left the cover of my vehicle and he had left his vehicle, but stopped and turned to face me. And now I have no cover. And, and he obviously pulled the trigger on me. And, uh, and it's just God's good grace that I'm here today to tell this story. Absolutely. But if you, if you think that that doesn't haunt me to this day, of course, um, of course, and and it'll haunt me the rest of my life. I mean, there's there's guys that have been in shootings that that I, I think every every guy in a shooting, any shooting you've been into, stays with you. Um, 
but but this this one my non-shooting haunts me more than anything in my career because to this day i know that that guy tried to kill me i should be dead Uh, by the grace of god i am not and i honestly regret that i didn't pull the trigger on him when i had the chance and i know that might sound you know crazy to some of your listeners but i'm here to tell you i really wish i would have killed him and the reason why is because he obviously is a cop killer. He obviously was a killer. A to, killer. To get period. out of the car. Yeah. yeah. To get out of the car and turn and, and and square off with other with cops, and you've got your gun. That man has killed before. I guarantee you, he's killed before. I'm sure. I'm sure he went on to kill afterwards. But that's the kind of that's the caliber of man we're talking about. And and I truly wish that that I would have had uh, some some other signal that said shoot rather than all the all the clouded you know the the confusion that had me questioning whether or not to shoot sure until it was too late yeah uh, what was that night like afterwards <laughs> you know what it was kind of funny um you've been in situations most of your listeners, I'm sure everyone truthfully can relate to this, even if it's a schoolyard fight back in junior high. When when the event is over, you get this dump, this adrenaline dump. And um, and that happened to me. It didn't happen until after uh, at the station, Bobby told me about the gun. And that's when all of a sudden I was shaking. I was literally shaking and trying to make sure no one else saw that I was shaking, but, but, you know, I'm thinking, why am I shaking? And I, I mean, it's not like I was frightened, you know, I wasn't scared at that moment. The the incident was long over. I'm in the security of the, the station and it didn't scare me, but I mean, it just, it no, was you, like I've, this I've been in that situation. Your whole body just starts shaking. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, the incident's over. You're not, yeah. the fear is gone. You're just sitting there. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. weird. It's like your body has kind of remember all of this. Yeah. Well, I remember that that for whatever reason my partner was not able to stay after work and I don't remember now why, but I was I was kind of pissed like, man, I I need some beer after work. I mean, I got to have a drink. So we went by and I I picked up some beer and I had more beer at home and I just went home. And while I was there by myself. I didn't even turn the TV on. I'm just sitting there on, on the couch drinking beer for several hours and just playing this scenario through my head a million times. And I've played it through my head a million times since that night. Yeah, I'm sure. But the only thing I regret, um, the, the lesson I learned from it, quite frankly, and, you know, I'd go on to be a training officer and, and tell, you know, younger deputies the, the, the story of this. But I made the mistake of locking in on the idea that he was going to run. And I wanted I wanted to catch him so badly if he did that that I made a, a really uh, poor tactical error um, by by leaving the cover of my vehicle and and pursuing him that aggressively. Where the truth of the matter is, I mean, after watching him run down the alley, I wouldn't have caught him anyway. So in hindsight, you know, the way you catch people that run, the best way, unless you're a sprinter. Um, is is you catch them with the radio. A guy takes off running. You set up a containment. You get you know you get this two or three block area cordoned off, 
and you know you have a helicopter circling above within minutes and and then you bring in a canine and you search for them and you find them you know more than half the time at least so that's what i in in hindsight i should have just you know stayed with my vehicle kept the cover of the vehicle and and uh you know not assumed he was going to run so i i got away with one there Danny stared death in the face on a nightly basis. Over the course of his 21-year career, he witnessed shootings, children killed or shot, injuries and deaths to his fellow officers, unsolved murders, and a whole lineup of other dramatic events. They took a cumulative psychological toll that snuck up on him and ended his career. And Danny's experience is way too common. According to a recent article in Psychology Today, of approximately 900,000 sworn law enforcement officers in the United States, 19% of them have PTSD. Other studies suggest that approximately 34% suffer symptoms associated with PTSD, but do not meet the standards for full diagnosis. And suicide is a leading cause of death. Of the 632 law enforcement deaths across the country in 2021, almost 25% of those were self-inflicted. Law enforcement personnel are 54% more likely to die of suicide than people in other occupations. According to Dr. Tim Falk of the Alabama Law Enforcement Alliance, quote, cops are killing themselves at about two and a half times the rate that bad guys are killing cops. And that should really put up a lot of red flags for most law enforcement agencies. When I when I left the job, I was diagnosed with chronic PTSD, and and I really was having a a difficult time from from just the from from specific incidents or just like the amalgamation of, of of so much. It's you know I don't know that my my uh the the shrink told me that he said the difference between chronic PTSD and and just uh, i forget the acute PTSD i think it was he said chronic PTD, PTSD is is most commonly seen in combat veterans or people who have experienced a long period of time where there there's numerous traumatic incidents as opposed to someone that you know might walk into a liquor store and get robbed or something you know one one incident and that's and, and he said the 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 problem with chronic PTSD is he said you know it it stays with you and it's a lot heavier and it's a lot harder to treat and um and again he associated it with you know people that that have been to combat so it's kind of hard to to put your finger on it like I said in my book I tell all kinds of stories I I got knocked unconscious one night I've I've been in shootings. I've had so many things happen to me that, you know, but truthfully, the the last seven years of my career working homicide, you know, I got to be honest. I mean, just just the numbers of, of dead bodies that you, you stood over, you know, and, and I mean, your whole career, you deal with death and, and you learn to process it. But, you know, as an investigator, you, you do so more intimately and you go to the autopsies and I mean, I've been to autopsies of, of someone I know when a deputy was killed, and, and I'm working on that case, you know. And, and, and I, like I said, you know, the, the dead cops, the dead kids, you know, especially the kids, man. And, and that really took a toll on me. And when I left, 
I, I really, I knew I was done. I mean, the last probably six months to a year, like, felt like I was out in the middle of the ocean and, and I needed to get to shore, but I couldn't even see it. Like, it was, it was like, there's no way I'm going to, I'm going to make it out of this. That's how I felt. So, um, my, so I, I'm, I'm dealing with my, uh, orthopedic doctor and basically the, my last day of work, I was driving down the, the road and my neck froze when I looked over my shoulder to change lanes. And that was from the stress. And I also had, had previously had a neck surgery from an injury that I got in a fight. And, um, and so when I told my doctor what had happened, he said, he said, you know what, Danny, you're finished. And when he said that, I broke down and I couldn't stop. I, I was sobbing like a baby. I mean, I couldn't even believe he was saying this to me, that you're done. And even though I knew in my heart that I was, that I needed to be done, that the, that the job was killing me, it was, a, it was this, this unbelievable impact. And, um, and wow. when he saw that, and surprised he you. was what. Well, yeah, it did. And, but he was wise enough to know what he was looking at. He knew that I was broken. And, and he said, he said, Danny, I want you to go see a, um, a psychologist. He goes, I'm going to refer you out, you know? And I'm like, oh, great. You know, I got to go to the freaking uh, nut doctor, you know, and be part of the rubber gun squad, you know? Right, right. So, <laughs> so this guy, this, this doctor, they make this appointment and he sends this questionnaire before I, before I go to the appointment, it says, uh, hey, you know, um, here's a few questions, you know, answer them the best you can before you come in. And there was like three pages with a, a total of about six questions. So yeah. like, you know, a question and a couple paragraphs room to answer, another question, a couple. And the questions were things like, you know, what about your job causes stress? <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I literally... Ralph, I, I swear to God, I look at this and I just shook my head. I said, you got to be kidding me. How? So I, I scribble across it, C attached. And this is where my, this is where my writing kicks in, you know, like I wanted to write that big piece of crap report. I just start typing and, and pretty soon I print out like uh, it's 12, 13, 14 pages of a typewritten response that would answer those five or six questions that were asked. And when I go and meet with this guy that's got initials before and after his name and this big fancy desk, and I'm in this nice, comfortable leather couch, he keeps looking at this, this story that I've provided him and, and he's going over, he goes, you know, I've read this two or three times now after the introductions. And he said, uh, you really ought to write for a living. Well, <laughs> those words flew over my head. Like, I mean, it didn't even register to me because all I cared about is another doctor just told me my career's done. I knew in my heart that my career was done. This guy's supposed to fix me because obviously, you know, I've, I've turned into a banana. So, um, you know, I, I, I didn't even register that thought. But he says that and he ended up saying it two or three times. And he, and then we had a series of meetings and he put me through all the tests and, uh, and you know, which I passed or failed, depending on how you want to look at it. But the bottom line was he would diagnose me with chronic PTSD. And then eventually we get to the, the end of all these sessions and we're at the, and what to do about it part. So, uh, I scoffed at the idea of medications. I laughed out loud when he talked about, you know, group therapy 
And I'm like, come on, dude, you, you see other cops, right? I mean, cops aren't going to do group therapy. We're just not. And uh, even if it's a group of other cops, I mean, for one, we'd probably know each other. And that's <laughs> right. right. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, I, I told him, I said, look, Doc, I go, here's the thing. The, the, the big stressor of my life has been removed. I'm, I'm not going back to work, so I think I'm going to be okay. I just I need some healing process. I've got a good family. You know, by now I was married and had kids and stuff. And I said, I've got a good support system, and uh, um, I think I'll be fine. And he said, okay. He goes, well, let me, let me suggest one other thing. I said, what's that? He goes, write. I said, what do you, what do you mean write? He goes, write, write your stories. Tell your stories. He goes, it's the most therapeutic thing you can do. And I'm like, seriously, Doc? Well, I hadn't planned on retiring at 42 years old. And, of course, I, I couldn't. I mean, you know, what I got for a pension wouldn't have sustained me for the rest of my life and got my kids through school and everything. So I had to start a second career, but... But I also had to have another surgery on my neck, and um, so I had some downtime, and, and that's when I started writing and, and kind of telling some stories. And it took me um, a lot of years before I could tell uh, the true story. I, I wrote, I've published eight novels, or seven novels, I'm sorry. I've published seven novels, and then last September I published a memoir, and it's called Nothing Left to Prove. And... Um, and it's a heavy book. It's a book that every cop should read. Uh, anyone who wants to be a cop should read. And anyone who supports police, they should read. I mean, truthfully, I, I've had, it's been a, it's been a, it was a bestseller for, for several months. It's been, it's done really, really well on Amazon. And, um, and I get emails and, and, you know, uh, messages from people, they give them to me one way or another from, from all over the world, honestly, but especially throughout the country, uh, and especially from cops that, that, that just talk about that book. And it's, it's not a book of bravado. You know, this is how cool I am. It, in fact, go on. In fact, I tell people I got one chapter challenge, you know, go on Amazon. You can read the first three chapters free, you know, in the sneak preview, read the first chapter and tell me you don't want to know what happens, you know, cause it's a heavy book. I start the book telling about my last day at work and my last day, that day I sit in the doctor's office and, um, so it's a heavy book, but it's got a lot of interesting cases, some celebrity uh, cases. It, it, there's a lot of stuff in there that, that, I mean, people will enjoy reading it. But more than anything, cops should read it because I am very open about how the job affected me. And we as a society, we as, as cops in this society are getting better about being honest about how these things affect us, but we're still not good enough. I, I've got, I've got right off the top of my head, I can tell you six people, uh, cops that, that I was friends with who have killed themselves. Wow. And now the and, suicide rate is horrible, isn't it? Um, it outnumbers line of duty deaths every single year. More cops kill themselves than are killed in the line of duty. That is, that is a longstanding statistic and, um, and it's a tragic one. And I can tell you that, that the, the only way we're going to change that is to get more cops to be able to admit that, hey, I'm hurt. Hey, I'm broken. And and for it not to be um, viewed as a weakness. I viewed it as a weakness. I'll tell you the story. I mean, the story's in the, in the book. But I literally, I, I, I write this. I, I felt like I let everyone down. I was embarrassed. I snuck out in the night. 
the my lieutenant homicide wanted to have a little retirement party for me. I said no. I went the, I went on the weekend to clean out my desk. I was so embarrassed about leaving, and it took me a lot of years, Ralph, before I could before I could face. I, I ran away. We we sold the house. I mean, I took my family with me, but we left. I, I moved out of state. Um, I didn't talk to anyone except for one of my old partners, maybe maybe two or three. But I was I was so ashamed of how I left, and it took a long time before uh, I was I finally recognized that that I don't I don't have to be ashamed, and and I have nothing left to prove. In the beginning of his career as a writer, Danley only wrote fiction where he had complete control of the stories and didn't have to revisit those things that haunted him. Fifteen years later and after several successful crime novels, he was able to open the doors he had tried to keep closed and finally started putting his personal story to paper. He says it wasn't an easy thing to do, but the result is worth it. His excellent memoir, Nothing Left to Prove. It lays bare the violence he encountered on the job and the many horrific crimes he investigated. And it talks about how he dealt with those things then and how he managed to pick up the pieces later. Danny hopes it encourages more cops to admit their hurt and to seek help before it kills them. We thank Danny R. Smith for his service, courage, and honesty. It's a great honor to call him today's hero behind the headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our producers are myself, Frank Hobbs, and Apex Media. If you haven't already, please download, rate, review, and subscribe. And check out some of our past episodes, such as SEAL Team 6 Helicopter Crash and the Dyer Rescue Mission. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines.